Well, good morning. It's wonderful to be here in Kingsburg. Wonderful, wonderful to be here at Grace Church of the Valley. Mary and I are thrilled to be here, and we have longed to be with you, like in the apostolic greetings of so many of the letters in the New Testament. We've longed to be with you, but have been hindered. Uh, We were hindered from being with you over the course of the last year or so, and uh, it really is God's grace that uh, we exult in when we are back together. And, and you guys look great. Uh, the Lord has obviously blessed uh, Kingsburg and Grace Church of the Valley. And uh, Mary and I love you, and we, we know so many of your families, and we get to come and we see babies become toddlers, and toddlers become children. And uh, I've been here long enough to see children come with their children. And that's exactly what we're going to be talking about today. And so, uh, Scott, I want to thank you for the honor of speaking about the gathering storm over the family, because we have to have a conversation about something that Christians have not had to discuss in this way for millennia, and we're going to talk about why that's the case. Why is it that Christians right now have to talk about what Christians really haven't talked about for nearly 2,000 years, and, uh, and that is because of what is now coming as an assault upon the family. In order to, put, to set the stage for this, I want us to go back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Now, I'm a theologian. That's an occupational hazard, you just want to know. Theologians deal with questions. Some of the most important works in the history of theology are, are questions that are then followed by answers. The Reformation of the 16th century is largely hammered out in what were called disputations, which means you had a Protestant reformer here, you had a Catholic uh, official there, and they disputed back and forth. And in that disputation came the clarification of the Reformation. Sometimes you you have to ask the right question to get the right answer. Every worldview, and every human being operates out of a worldview, every worldview has to answer the questions, number one, why is there something rather than nothing? Number two, what's gone wrong in the world? Number three, is there any way to fix it? And then four, where is history headed? We have to operate with some assumption in the answers to those questions. You may say, well, this morning as I was getting dressed, I didn't think about all those things. Well, the very importance of a worldview is you were able to get ready this morning and, you know, get yourselves or your, your family here this morning without thinking about those things because they're so basic And of course, the Christian worldview answers those questions comprehensively and truthfully. This this is why the Christian worldview is superior to every other worldview. It's not superior because it's more sophisticated. It's superior, superior because it's true. I didn't plan to quote Henry Kissinger this morning. But one of my favorite ways of learning about the world is historical biography. I am a ravenous consumer of history and historical biography. And every once in a while you find a gem and you say, I'm going to hold on to that for the rest of my life. One of those gems is a conversation between President Richard Nixon and Secretary of State Henry Kissinger. They had, against political promises, bombed Cambodia. President Nixon is going to have to explain it to the nation. And he said, well, what are the potential explanations? And before Kissinger can say anything, he said, I tell you what, this is what I think the potential explanations are. Number one, communist aggression simply forced our hand. Number two, 
there was a sinister plot to do this or that or that, we had to address it. Number three, the uh, Cambodian forces were ready for an incursion into Vietnam, and we had to act. He went through about four or five, and he said, I think I'm going to go with number three, which is that the uh, Cambodian troops were massed on the border and, and ready to come, and, and thus we had to bomb. And he looked at Kissinger, he said, you think that one will work? Kissinger said, Mr. President, I think that is a very good choice. Because that particular answer has the additional benefit of being true. I often think about that. <laughs> to say to the President of the United States, that's actually a good thing for you to say. And, you know, it just helps a little bit that it's also true. Well, the wonderful thing about the Christian worldview is not that it works, but that it's true. And it works because it's true. And the Christian worldview answers those questions just very quickly because we're not going to have time to go through the whole Christian worldview, but let's just remind ourselves, why is there something rather than nothing? Because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What's gone wrong? Sin. Is there any rescue? Salvation. Christ. And where's history going? Kingdom of Christ. Judgment. Heaven and hell. That, that, that frames everything we think about. That's why you didn't have to think about it as you were getting your kids ready this morning. That's why you didn't have to think about it while you were making coffee this morning. It's because it's so much a part of the way you look at the world that everything else grows out of it. I want us to turn to Genesis 1. We're going to look at Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 in order to understand what we are facing as a challenge to the family and just how basic it is. And since we don't have time to go through all of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, Let's just remind ourselves of Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then skip down to verse 26 in chapter 1, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now move one chapter over to Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up his place with the flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his mother and his father and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed." First book of the Bible, Genesis, in the Latin, Bereshit. Hebrew is the beginning. The Bible doesn't just kind of start somewhere and then look backward to the beginning. By God's Holy Spirit inspiration of the text, it begins right in chapter one of the first book of the Bible, 
Genesis, beginning. It answers the most fundamental question from the beginning because everything else follows. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, that one sentence is the very foundation of everything we know as Christians. Everything we know begins with the self-existent, uncreated God who created the cosmos. The self-existent, uncreated God. He always has been, always will be, always will be. He's uncreated. The self-existent, uncreated God creates the cosmos, and in the cosmos, he creates one little pale blue planet. And on that planet, he puts human beings. And among all the creatures that he makes for his glory, one is his image bearer. And what I want us to see is that when humanity is described, when when mankind is described, from the very beginning, the family is there. Now, in the next hour, I will give uh, far more attention to this theme of the gathering storm. And uh, in, in just the last few days, obviously, it's taken on a whole new meaning. But just remember that as Winston Churchill wrote that book, The Gathering Storm, the first volume of his memoirs of World War II, it was all about the human temptation to deny the obvious to grave peril. The sophisticated leaders of Europe looked at all the Nazi forces gathering and said, don't worry, he won't use them. Churchill knew better. That's why the British people had to bring him to office as prime minister, because he was the only man who had known the truth and spoken the truth consistently through the generations. What we see is a gathering storm. And I don't just mean what we now know in the headlines from Ukraine. What I mean is what is happening in in Western civilization, what is happening in, in, in our cultural context, what is happening at warp speed which is an assault upon the family. Now, Christians have noted an assault upon the family coming throughout decades because it it came in phases. It didn't just all arrive at once. It wasn't like the detonation of of, of one bomb. It was rather like skirmishes on several fronts. We're going to be looking at those fronts. But just in terms of exposition, go back to to Genesis 1 again. It is just fascinating. And, And by the way, here's something about Christians and Genesis. If this is not true in space and time and history, then it is just a suggestion. The Christian worldview, the orthodox Christian biblical worldview, is based upon the understanding that everything we read in Genesis is space, time, history. Six days in which God created the earth, and a sequence that is given us in the book of Genesis. The seventh day the Lord rested. That's not just poetry, that's history. The historical nature of this text is of crucial importance. And it's of crucial importance because everything in the Bible flows after that. How you read the first chapters of Genesis, indeed, how you read the first verses of Genesis determines how you read the rest of the Bible. A truly biblical, truly evangelical worldview, or a truly evangelical theology, has to begin with Genesis as Genesis, space, time, and history. What we see so quickly is that the pinnacle of chapter one is the creation of human beings. And you say, well, that, that, that's just, that just shows you how great we are. No, it shows you how great God's plan is. But God's ultimate plan in creation was not just to have 
all of the all of the separation of the heavens from the earth, the separation of the waters from the land, the separation, you know, in, in the land, and then the, the, the creation of vegetation, and then the creation of the animals, and the, the fish in the sea, and the birds in the sky, and, and, and all the animals on the earth, that is all to God's glory. But until the creation of human being, there is no one to praise God for it. You follow me? So, I love dogs. Many of you probably love dogs. I think dogs are some of the Lord's most uh, glorious creatures because dogs are the one creature who are certain we are the center of the cosmos. And that's just a, you, you know it's a lie, but it's a comfortable lie. And uh, I mean, after a hard day, that's why I tell people, that's why every 12-year-old boy needs a dog, you know, just simply because you got to have somebody who says, don't worry, the world's not ending, let's play. Uh, it's just, it's, it, that's what dogs do. But no dog, I promise you this, and it's not that I've ever been in the mind of a dog. I don't have to get in the mind of a dog to know this. It's in the Bible. No dog has ever stood on your front porch and looked at a sunset and said, what a mighty God we serve. Would you look at this? What an awesome God created this. No, he's thinking, I get to eat real soon. God created human beings in His image, as, as His image bearers, and that means many, many things, but it means, at least most fundamentally, we are the only creature who knows we are a creature. We are the only creature who knows the Creator. We are the only creature who is in relationship with the Creator. God does not issue commands and laws and statutes to the herds of cattle. He doesn't speak to them the way He speaks to us. He created Adam and Eve. And notice what it says here in chapter 1. So, after having said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, we're told, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, what's been going on in the world around us for the, the course of the last several decades? So, remember, Churchill in that title, The Gathering Storm, which I just borrowed from him, as a way of honoring him, and a, a very influential figure in my life, uh, a, a, a model in so many ways for, for my thinking about leadership and about life and about understanding the world since the time that, that I was about uh, 13 and, and, and wrote my first biographical paper on Winston Churchill. He's been, you know, I would say an interest, others would say an obsession. But, but you look at this, and the reason he talked about it as the gathering storm is because all these things were coming, and people keep saying, well, yeah, I see that, and yeah, I see this. But no one was admitting that this was all coming together in a united front. Things that were unthinkable just a matter of years ago are now everyday headlines. Things that were, were absolutely assumed as unchangeable are now subject to inversion and subversion just about everywhere we look. And, and so smart, intelligent Christians understand we just didn't get there. We just did, you, you don't arrive at a supposedly transgender woman winning all the championships at the Ivy League swimming events. You don't get there from Genesis 1 without a whole lot of confusion in between. Pitarim Sorokin, and I see it's just funny even to say his name, Pitarim Sorokin. What a name. You hear Pitarim Sorokin, you should hear Russian. 
Pittering Sorokin was uh, the founder of the Department of Sociology at Harvard University, and you're saying, well, what does he have to say? He has a lot to say. He was a Russian immigre from uh, the United States. He ended up at Harvard in the early 20th century. He had been four times under a death sentence by the Bolsheviks, and he eventually escaped. He was the founder of the Department of Sociology. He was a deeply conservative man, obviously not who you'd look for on the faculty of Harvard today. Deeply conservative man, in a Russian conservative way. He came to teach at, uh, at Harvard University, started that department, and then he started teaching. And he said, he said, you know, here's one of the things. And sociology was this attempt to try to understand human social behavior, how, how, how human beings interact, and, and how societies uh, you know, form, and how societies change. And he came in and he said, look, civilization, every civilization has to accomplish two or three things or no civilization happens. And, and the first one, now you're going to follow this, and you're going to understand how this plays in our world today right now. And that is this. He says, the first thing every society has to do if it's going to survive is have babies. Reproduction. Unless reproduction takes place, society dies. And when there is a fall-off in fertility, there is a fall-off in relative social strength. And unless there is a recovery, then that society is destined to dissipate simply because you've got this uh, lack of babies coming. And, and by the way, that wisdom doesn't come from Pitarine Sorokin. It comes from Genesis 1, in which we just read the first command given to the man and the woman were to multiply, be fruitful, and, and fill the earth. Peter Riemstroken is a very wise man. He came back and he said, but he said, the challenge to, the challenge to this is restraining the sexual impulse so that it's, it's not just about sex, but rather it's about marriage and it's about babies. And, and so it's a, a society depends upon that. And a society that gets confused about that is in, is in a terminal condition. He came back and had some other really brilliant insights. And, and one of them is, there is no model in human history where the failure is primarily female. So, ladies, I know you're feeling better about yourself. You should in this. There is no example in the history of all civilizations and societies in which the failure at these tasks is primarily female. The failure is always primarily male. Sorokin came back and he said, if you look at failed societies, you have to ask the question, where did they fail? And he said, you basically see that they fail in two ways. Number one, they fail by allowing men to have access to sex without marriage. And they fail by not forming civilization in such a way that boys, more likely than not, will grow up to be functional men. He said, societies break at those two points. If you find a broken society, you can generally go back and say it broke because it detached sex from marriage and thus men from their offspring and thus men from civilizational responsibility. And secondly, it did not have a mechanism of turning boys into men. Now, you say it's a very male-centric you know, view of the world. Well, Human history would tell you, for all kinds of reasons, for good and for bad, that uh, if men and boys are broken, the society is broken. 
And as, as, as I say, there is no example of a human society that has ever primarily failed because women failed in their function. Civilizations fail largely because men fail at their functions. So the task of civilization is actually to look at the crib when you see a baby boy and say, we got a challenge. In a different way than when you got a baby girl. Now, obviously, we, we, we are not speaking of this as if it's just a sociological phenomenon because we believe this is the way God created us in the beginning, that God created us male and female, as you see here, and, and has a purpose for the male and a purpose for the female. And notice how quickly this gets to marriage. And that's what we saw in Genesis chapter 2. First of all, even in Genesis chapter 1, it's there, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And that's not just any man with any woman. As it turns out, by the time you get just one chapter thereafter, in Genesis chapter 2, it is the man and his wife. And they are to cling to one another. And so you have this indissoluble bond of marriage that emerges very quickly. It's not just a mating pair. You know, birds can be identified as being mating pairs. And by the way, amazingly enough, many of them, as well as other species, are incredibly monogamous. You have mating pairs of birds, and they only get together like once a year. And the, one of them is swimming in the North Atlantic, flying, excuse me, I do know the difference between fish and birds. Well, one of them flying around in the South Atlantic, the other one flying around in the North Atlantic, and then they rendezvous on some craggy little rock in the middle of, you know, just off the shore of Peru. And, and they have just a very quick little honeymoon, and then, you know, the, you got eggs. And, and, and it's just in God's glory and in, in creation. But, but this pair, the human being, and, and then, of course, it can, therefore, a, a man shall leave his mother and father and shall cling to his wife. And so, you have this beautiful biblical picture, and you say, well, you know, this, is, this comes along about halfway through the Bible, just in case we were confused. No, this is where it begins. This is where it begins. And what follows in the Scripture is, is this incredible revelation of God's glory in the home, God's glory in the family. God's glory in marriage is the union of a man and a woman for life, a monogamous, faithful, glorious union for life that actually becomes a model for Christ's love for the church. So that this picture is only fulfilled in Christ and the church. The picture of God's glory in marriage is never fully fulfilled in our marriages. It is ultimately fulfilled at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So right there when you're looking at Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, therefore a man shall leave his mother and father and shall cling to his wife, you're actually seeing a picture of Christ's love for the church, but you don't know it yet. But we're looking at this through biblical theology. We're looking at Genesis, and then we understand we have to look at all of the Bible through the lens of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And you'll notice it's absolutely consistent. At no point at any chapter or in any verse, Throughout all the Scripture after Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, there is no confusion about what marriage is. There is no confusion about what it means to be a man and a woman. There is incredible biblical honesty about the difference between a man and a woman. There is candor in the challenge of turning a boy into a man, which turns out to be a greater challenge than turning girls into women. Every single civilization's had to decide it, the relative importance it's going to put on raising boys to be men and the success or failure 
in answering that question will be the success or failure of the civilization. Pitarim Sorokin, again, just an interesting observer because he was a Russian. He came to the United States. He looks at the United States expecting to find strength. He does find some strength, but he finds amazing weakness because it's at the very time that he comes from the Soviet Revolution to the United States that the United States is beginning to redefine its understanding of marriage and sexual morality and all the rest. And he said, you are playing with fire. We're talking about a gathering storm over the family. What are we really talking about? Well, it, it, it followed an historical pattern. Now, there's always been sin. Okay, so let's just stipulate that. You know, how fast does sin come? The next chapter we just looked a bit at Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Sin comes in Genesis 3 and everything changes. Except God's plan, God's plan for marriage doesn't change. It just becomes more important. Because in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, marriage functions as the union of the man and the woman, a one flesh union. And it, it is a procreative union. It is, it is to bring forth children to God's glory. And, and it's the very beginning of civilization. But after Genesis 3, it becomes something else. It becomes a firebreak against disaster. In a, in a sinful world, marriage doesn't become less important. It becomes far more important. In a sinful world, marriage and the family don't become less important. They become like the one refuge against the battering storm of a sinful society. The, the, the family is, as one poet put it a long time ago, a haven in a heartless world. The one place, the one little civilization where things are to be right, if all the rest of the world is wrong, is a family. 20th century has been very tough on the family. In one sense, there, there of course, are, you can say, well, there are roots before that. Well, of course there are. Just think with me very quickly. There were at least some roots that you could see visible long before the 20th century. For one thing, in the modern age, with the rise of romanticism and, uh, and, and emotivism. And, and these were things that said, movements that said, basically, you deserve to be happy, and that happy can only be, and you think of the German romantics and Goethe and all the rest, and you realize that there's this sense of longing, and, and the, the problem is that the answer to their quest was not always marriage. It's very self-referential, this, this romanticism, and, and the emotivism saying, you know, you, you basically are what you feel. It's a very dangerous proposition. The Bible actually doesn't say that. The Bible says that the feelings should follow the truth, the embrace of the truth. But, and, and, and that weakened marriage and, and everything else because it became largely a matter of how you feel. Now, throughout most of human history, before, say, the, the rise of the modern age, people basically didn't ask, hey, you know, how do you feel about your marriage? Why did they not ask that question? Because you're married. It's what theologians call an ontological fact. You're married. Whether you feel married or not, you're married. And your marriage is defined not by you, but by the community, by the law. But no, not actually that. Throughout most of human history, in, in Western civilization, it was clearly understood that who defined marriage was God. 
And even the Book of Common Prayer, which is in the, in the Church of England, which is still basically the, and, and by the way, didn't come up with that out of whole cloth. The, uh, the, the marriage service in the Book of Common Prayer in the Church of England back during the time of the English Reformation, it didn't come out of nowhere. It was based upon Christian marriage traditions. And, and by the way, lots of people who never consider themselves to the slightest degree influenced by Anglicanism, they are when they get to a marriage service at, because the language comes right out of the Book of Common Prayer. All the language we know, who gives this woman to this man, and it just, just, it's, it's, all, it's all from the Book of Common Prayer. But as, as you look at that, you recognize that uh, that, that language, it, it, it just reminds us of the rightness of marriage and of the fact that it creates an indissoluble bond. And there is very little in that historic language about romantic love. Now, we, we, do, we do want romantic love, but according to the biblical worldview, romantic love often follows marriage rather than producing marriage. Now, most of human history in Western civilization, you know, young men and young women didn't date. They were married, and love grew out of that. But all that to say, by the time you get to the 20th century, revolution's about to happen. And just to track how it changed and how marriage became redefined, as we think about the gathering storm over the family, and we're thinking about this in the year 2022, the last, say, 100 and, say, 22 years, even just the last 100 years, been remarkable in all of human history. More change has come into the family in the last 100 years than in all the previous millennia of human history from Genesis until now. And you say, well, tell me about that. What, you know, justify that statement. Well, just consider the fact that basically no one in Western civilization, and we're talking about where Christianity is the dominant influence, no one prior to, say, 1929 or so could obtain a divorce on anything but biblical grounds that were confirmed by the church. So, that's, that's, that's how our world has changed. Now, now without any, any reference to God, church, anything, marriage has been completely redefined. Now, it took a while for that to come full circle, and you have to wait a minute till we get to that. But the other big thing that happened very early in the 20th century was that the Church of England, and we're back to the Church of England again, it did something no other church had ever done throughout nearly 2,000 years of Christian history. It began to allow for the use of birth control. Now, we have to have kind of a grown-up conversation here that, that was more theoretical than practical in 1928, 1929, when the Lambeth Conference met and said, we, we believe that there might be legitimate causes for a married couple to use birth control because there weren't many birth control methodologies that were very effective. The pill wasn't invented until the 1960s. Uh, brought about by vast funding, largely on the part of, of, uh, of women, uh, in, including the, the heiress to the McCormick fortune in, uh, in Chicago, put vast amounts of money into developing what became known as the pill. But the point is that in 1928, 1929, the Church of England was the only church on planet Earth that said that the use of artificial birth control could be anything other than sin. Now, you had diff different 
developments come technologically, but the, you, you say, well, you know, what about the Roman Catholic Church on this? Just as a matter of interest, wasn't it like in the 1960s that, uh, that they confirmed that the use of artificial birth control was, uh, was illegitimate? Yes, that's exactly, that's exactly right. But you know why it, it took that long for the Roman Catholic Church to have to say anything? And that's because before the pill, it wasn't, there was no mechanism that was very predictable. You didn't have to have the Pope answer a question until the development of the pill. But then you say, well, it's what made the Roman Catholic Church kind of infamous about that policy in the late 1960s was the fact that the Protestant churches had already basically caved. In other words, it, the Roman Catholics were then odd for holding against artificial birth control. But the fact is, every single Christian church or denomination held solid on that until the Church of England, the Lambeth Conference, in the 1920s. And you say, this is, this is really deep stuff. What's that got to do with things? Well, let me put it this way. Notice that what is given in Scripture is the command to the man and the woman to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The assumption is that marriage and children go together. You have to have some great break in the entire understanding of marriage, covenant, creature, creator, and creature. You have to have some great breach in that to where people now think of marriage as emotional self-expression rather than a conjugal union, primarily to bring the husband and the wife together in the formation of a new thing known as a family that will be populated by children who will be greeted with enthusiasm, not just by the married couple, but by the community. So did you follow what I was saying there? So you, it's a vast shift, and it's, it's been made possible at least in part by technology. The technology didn't come out of nowhere. The technology came out of a feminist world that it was driving for, and this is the feminist argument, and I'm not making this up. It, you, can, you can find it right in the documents, and it is in such things as the Griswold decision in the Supreme Court in the mid-1960s that in order for a woman to be equal with a man, she must be at all points capable of being equally unpregnant. Pregnancy redefined even by the United States Supreme Court as a burden women ought not to have to carry. So if they're going to be equal with men, they must be equally able to be unpregnant at any moment. And you can see exactly where that, that goes. So you go immediately from the Griswold decision, the same logic shows up in Roe v. Wade in 1973. Because if a woman has an absolute right to be equally unpregnant with a man at any time, then abortion all of a sudden explodes onto the issue. The unraveling of civilization... Here's what I want us to see. The unraveling of the civilization doesn't begin in Washington. The unraveling of the civilization certainly doesn't begin at the United Nations, although the United Nations and Washington are often accelerants. It begins with the breakdown of marriage and the family at its most basic level. After you had the, the, the development of birth control, and, and so you had the separation of marriage and children. Children now become an accessory. Children now become a, a, an option. Children now become a choice. The next thing that happened was the rise of no-fault divorce, and you're a ground zero for that. Because of the states that pioneered easy divorce, California was, uh, was at one of the, uh, it, it was really the, the largest driver of no-fault divorce. And here's a little interesting political footnote. Okay, so just, just consider this for a moment. Interesting political footnote. The governor of California that signed this revolutionary law was Ronald Reagan. This, this revolutionary law that allowed for divorce under 
circumstances that required no finding of fault. In other words, you could not have you could not have widespread divorce so long as divorce was only judicially granted on the basis of a defined legal fault. Someone had to have committed adultery. Someone had, had to have deserted. There had to be a, a judge to make that determination. No-fault divorce meant that either party at any time could come in and simply demand a divorce. Ronald Reagan signed that law. Now, interestingly, Ronald Reagan came later to, to understand that had been the biggest error of his political life. Because it, it, came, it came with unintended consequences. But the, the point is, it is already forbidden in Scripture. So by the time you get to, say, 1968, 1969, and something like that, you, you realize that everything we just read in Scripture, and, and of course, everything we say, you know, therefore, you know, th- th- this bond is forever. Let, what God has put together, let no man put asunder. That, that is now given way to, by the decree of this court, this marriage is declared to be null and void. Routinely, now by the millions and millions and millions. You can't have a stable civilization with no-fault divorce. You can't. Petrim Sorokin, I mentioned the Russian, he also said that the biggest issue in the continuation of survival is, it, and again, it comes down to a male problem. He says the two biggest issues for every society will come down to making men take responsibility for their own biological offspring and creating situations in which it is more likely that a boy will grow into functional manhood than not. That is, more likely that it will happen than will not happen. And Sorokin was very clear about this in saying that's what takes the family, the family, because society eventually finds it very, very difficult, if not impossible, to fix what a broken family has broken. Now, we are Christians, so we have to talk two ways, okay? Even at this point, we have to talk, first of all, in terms of the Bible's absolutely honest assessment of sin. But we also speak, and we're going to get to this at the end, and so just hold on to this, of the redemptive promise of Christ and of the church. So, in other words, we're the only people who believe that we really have to make very clear that marriage is a union of a man and a woman, and what God has put together, let no man tear asunder. We really do believe that we've got to hold fast on all these convictions. We really do believe that we need to celebrate, you know, the, 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 the bride and the groom coming together, and then the husband and the wife bringing children and, and raising those children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We know that sin will happen, and that in the church there will be those, not just in the community, but in the church there will be those who, uh, who, who bring another story into their lives. There are children who don't have the dads they need to have. There are, there are vulnerable people in the church, and that's where the church, by the power of Christ, in the new community, seeks together to make up for what is lost, but without ever denying that what is lost is loss. I hope that makes sense. But we have to go back to the 1960s. We had the development of artificial birth control separating marriage from sex. And then we had the, 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 uh, the rise of expressive no-fault divorce. Now, people, you know, I, I, I deal with this on the briefing. There was a, an article just recently about how many people at the end of the, of the pandemic stage of COVID have decided 
that they're done with their marriages. You know, we got through this far, but you know, during that time, we kind of just grew. We, we were locked in a room. We were locked in an apartment together in Manhattan for, for a year. And you know what? We're just kind of done with this. And in order for us to be who we're to be, this is that self-expressive, you know, m- m- it just drives the society. This is kind of the Oprahfication, you know. And Oprah used to do it by saying, tell me your truth. Well, I don't care about your truth. Sorry, I don't. I only care about the truth. The idea that everybody has your truth, you know, tell me your truth. And it's this idea that, okay, all you have to have is your version, your understanding, because truth is your self-expression. In the Bible, truth is never your self-expression. It is God's revelation. All right. But after you had the, the rise of, of widespread birth control, and by the way, I didn't say that means that Christians can never use birth control. I wrote an article about this, a book chapter. Of it. If you're interested in that, the, the point is, I would make that according to Scripture, every marriage must be fully open to the gift of children. Now, you notice I did not give a Catholic answer there, because the Catholic answer has to do with each and every occasion. And that, that's not what I'm arguing. I'm arguing that each and every marriage has to be open to the gift of children with full celebration and with anticipation. Then came no-fault divorce. Then came the free love movement. And, the, and this was the movement that said, you know, you deserve, as a human being, you deserve sexual expression without reference to marriage. And so you had the love-ins, you had the, all the stuff of the 1960s. Uh, when the, the, you began to get a hint, and, and those of us who were alive then, and I was just a child then, but those, some of you will remember, fewer and fewer Americans now remember in the 60s, it appeared that the entire civilization was breaking apart. And it kind of was, and still is. But this idea that, that sex outside of marriage is, is liberation. See, that's the thing. It, the, this ethos of liberation. People said sex outside of marriage is liberation. So we need to liberate ourselves and need to liberate others. Sexual liberation literally became the thing. And then you had the rise of second wave feminism. And first wave feminism was basically women ought to have the right to vote. That's kind of first wave feminism. Second wave feminism is women and men ought to be treated exactly the same by society. And the assumption is that, uh, you know, Betty Friedan, some of you remember that name, said that the, the home is a domestic concentration camp, that uh, the picture of the family with the mother and the father and their children, and assuming that that's normative, is a way of crushing women under unfair, oppressive uh, demands. And uh, the very picture of the family, which we see is, uh, you know, beautiful, the, the second wave feminists saw as oppressive and said that, that that is oppressive. There should be no more expectation that, there's, that, there, that a woman has a responsibility as a wife and a mother. There should be no more, uh, no more anticipation that that should affect in any way her ability to function in any job, in any profession, in any political role, etc. And, and then that required the next big step, which was one of the central goals of second wave feminism, which was the legalization of abortion. Now, again, you look at this just to understand something. You look throughout human history, you're going to find abortion and infanticide. You're going to find ancient pagan cultures where children who were not desired were simply left out on the hills for the wolves to find as babies. You're going to find in, the, in ancient medical records efforts to try to bring about abortion, and some of them are, are, are quite grotesque, or, or contraception. And uh, one of them, by the way, and I just, I just saw this recently, in a medieval medical manual said that if the man 
in the act of marriage keeps his head, his foot, uh, upon the corpse of a dead weasel, the baby is not likely to come. I will simply say, I don't think anything is likely to happen (laughs) with a dead weasel in the room. But nonetheless, that tells you the desperation. That tells you the desperation of people who want to separate marriage and sex, want to separate sex and babies, and eventually want to separate human beings from even the categories of male and female. And you see, I want you to see the trajectory. You can't start with the transgender revolution. You can't start with LGBTQ. But once you begin by separating marriage and procreation, marriage and, uh, and, and as an indissoluble union at the center of civilization, once you separate the primary civilizational energies of establishing and honoring marriage and letting, letting, standing back as a society and empowering parents to raise their children, the moment you break that, you break everything. This is a Christian theological principle known as subsidiarity. You say, this is, this is 8.30 in the morning. Okay, and this is like Sunday morning. This isn't, you know, Wednesday morning anthropology class at Cal State. Well, it is for a moment, okay? But Cal State, trust me, he's not talking about this. We are. The biblical doctrine of subsidiarity says that truth and authority subside at the most basic level. So in other words, if you want to find the truest truth, if you, and this is just not truth as in 2 plus 2 equals 4. This is truth as in what's right and what's wrong and what leads to a healthy society. The point is that you can't start with the United Nations. You have to start with mom and dad. If you want children to be raised successfully, you can't start at the General Assembly of the United Nations. Frankly, you can't start anything there, evidently. It's a biblical parable of the impossibility of the nations conspiring together to do anything good or competent. But nonetheless, in a fallen world, that's another thing. Sin. So, how does sin work? Sin's a problem in a family, but it is constrained within the family. That's why mom and dad are there. That's why they are to raise their children with correction in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Sin happens in a family, but sin is to be restrained in the family in such a way that only parents can restrain it. And only for the mom and the father, the institution of marriage constrains it. And then for the mother and the father, the church constrains them in the law of Christ. And, 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 and direction is possible. Health is possible. Nurture is possible. How in the world is a, is a little girl going to grow up to know what a woman's supposed to look like? You better not write the United Nations and say, we'd really like you to send kind of a prototype. we got a baby girl. We wanna... what, what is the picture of, of successful womanhood the United Nations is pointing us to? I shudder at the thought. But subsidiarity says that there's more truth and there's more authority at the lowest level. And the lowest, most basic level is male and female created he them. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Therefore, a man shall take his, his wife unto himself. Therefore, the man and the wife were naked in the garden and they were unashamed. Therefore, whatever God has put together, let no man tear asunder. That's why the church honors marriage in a way. It is, it's not because it's just a doctrine. It's because this is the way God created the universe, and we know it. 
And this, this, this is why subsidiarity says you expect strength to be greatest in the marriage and then in the home. That's why we make it so important to empower parents to be parents. That's why we actually hold parents accountable to be parents. That's why we make it in the church very, very, very difficult to get divorced because the grounds are so horrifying and they are so few. And instead, we try to bind couples together. We try to encourage mothers and fathers to raise their children. And you know what? They're, they're beyond that, the inner core where, where, where the most, most truth and authority lies by God's creative decree, then out from that you have, say, the extended family. So Mary and I are grandparents right now, and we have discovered that to be the greatest thing ever. And you know what? Both sets of my grandparents were like absolute reinforcements to my parents. I had an extended family. I had aunts and uncles and, and all the rest. And God's glory is in that. And then beyond that, you have, you know, a neighborhood. And a neighborhood's better than the United Nations. I had a story told by a pastor the other day. He said that uh, he had a young Christian couple, and they had their children in their home, and, and next door there was a lesbian couple who had a test tube baby, and uh, they, they, you know, the, they, they had children about the same age, and the lesbian couple was very, very, very opposed to this Christian couple, didn't want to talk to them, didn't want anything to do with them, didn't, uh, di didn't want any kind of contact. They, they understood themselves to be living in a very way, very, a way directly contrary to Christianity, but one of those two moms had a medical emergency in the night, and the other came next door of all the doors in that home on which they could knock. They knew to knock on the home of this Christian mom and dad with their own children in the house and their own children in their pajamas and tow. They said, we have an emergency. Would you please take care of our children? And in there is a picture of the gospel. Just see that. Of all the houses in all the neighborhood, including all their friends, where do they bring their children? They bring their children to an ark of safety, where at least in an emergency, they knew we got to take them. There's a mom and a dad there. They love those children. They will love ours. And then out from the neighborhood, you have a city. A city, a city does better than Washington, D.C. at dealing with problems. Now, again, that's a major argument in our government right now, even a major division between political parties. What, where do you start, high or low? Where, where, where do you start, with the lower community or with the higher community? The Bible says you start with the lower community, and then you build up and up and up and up and up. That's not to say that nations aren't important. I believe that nations are important. But it is to say that if you're waiting for Congress to solve your marital problem, you're never going to have it solved. But let's look at it the other way as time is, is fleeting. If you want to destroy an entire civilization, if you believe that the entire civilization is based upon patterns of oppression and intolerance that are simply limiting human self-expression and, and joy, if you believe that human flourishing is found in untying humanity from any kind of sexual morality is found in the Bible, if you, if you think of marriage as a, as, as, as a terrorizing, limiting relationship. If you think of the family, as Betty Friedan said, as a, as a domestic concentration camp imprisoning women, if that's the way you look at it, then eventually you're going to have to say, it's not just marriage that is oppressive. It's not just 
Christian sexual morality driven through Western civilization that's oppressive. It's, it's, it's the nouns. It's, it's male and female, man and woman, boy and girl. If self-expression is the ultimate source of authority, then you can be born male and declare yourself to be female. You can be born female and declare yourself to be male, and given the current non-binary ideology, and again, all this has to follow. It has to follow, because you can't say no to anybody. And so now you have people saying that in this non-binary, you know, claim of, of, uh, of, of gender identity, it basically can change regularly. I saw instructions given to a, a uh, school system in which it said, the request of children, and this is for the second grade, second grade, the request for children to give pronouns, preferred personal pronouns, should now be accelerated to weekly as in, now every week the child can have a different set of pronouns. All that to say, what I want us to see is that the gathering storm has now come for a roar. And, and here's the thing. It once was that a church like this, preaching the Bible like you do, and, and honoring the, the revelation of God in Scripture as you do, that this was the norm and not the exception. But now, brothers and sisters, increasingly it's the exception. And it used to be that the entire civilization was self-consciously predicated upon agreement with us on the basis of God's authority and creation. But right now, what we are experiencing is a direct effect, or a direct attempt to try to unravel creation. If we see it as merely political skirmishes, we miss it. If we think it's merely the latest debate in the university, we miss it. If we think this is just the latest referendum or... Uh, or initiative, or a general assembly motion, we're going to miss it. This is a sustained, self-conscious effort to try to unravel creation. Because if you just take the T in LGBTQ, just understand, it is the direct refutation of what we read from Genesis 1. So that puts us in an interesting predicament. And we're going to talk about that as the church in the second hour. It puts us in a very interesting predicament. But first of all, woe to us if we do not see the gathering storm when it comes. Woe to us, as the prophets of the Old Testament would say, if God gave us all the evidence and we denied it until it was too late. But on the other hand, it also means that we as Christians know there is no rescue. There is no rescue but Christ. And so... We have a job to do. And it's not just the preaching and teaching of the gospel. It is that first for the church. But it is also always sending out Christian families to do what only Christian families can do. Celebrating weddings among Christians, not just as another sweet romantic expression, but as a pushback against Satan. Celebrating the birth of every baby, not just as one more baby in the nursery, but as one more push back against a disaster looming, and one more opportunity to raise one more fallen little critter in the glory of God, until he or she will one day stand in the same place as his parents or her parents and make the same vow and keep it going until Jesus comes. Amen.